As with the others, this podcast is available to be seen on video. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. On today's Fry It Up with Augustus Cho, we are doing an installment from deep in the Bayou country of Louisiana where interesting individuals reside. I'm in deep, as in below Interstate 10, the most southern east-west route in the United States. And there is more here than the TV show, The Swamp People. My guest is no exception, for he is a filmmaker, a producer, a real estate investor, a city inspector, a family man, a FEMA contractor, and serious man of faith. We will unpack each of these aspects of this individual's life in the Bayou Country. And with that, we welcome to the Fry It Up podcast, William Gill of Patterson, Louisiana. How are you, William? I'm so pleased to be here, Augustus. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, let's get on this program. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> Good to know you're just chopping at the bit, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. Now, listen, I know you've, you've done lots of film work. So well, let's start from there. Um, you've, done, you've also produced as well. So give us some general background as to what kind of film work you've done. Man, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, about back in the day when I was like in high school, my dad was always giving these motivational talks and church talks to people, trying to help them become financially independent and helping keep their marriage together, helping to raise kids. So my dad bought a bunch of cameras and a bunch of shop lights and he started filming his work. And that was my job was to film, to film my dad. And he had a lot of people, you know, listen to us. He helped out hundreds and hundreds of people to keep their families together, keep their marriages together, become financially independent. And we did that for quite some years. And then I got married and went to work and then kind of slowed down a little bit. Uh, in 1999, I decided to sell all my equipment and become serious about real estate. And uh, so I had no more gear. In about 2008, I got serious again because now I had some money because I got real estate and I bought all the stuff that I sold before plus more. And I started filming a lot of artists and that just led to one thing to another thing. And, uh, you know, here in 2022, I just got to film my favorite rock bands from my high school years. So I went from filming my dad and doing church stuff to filming all kind of music. Uh, we did a couple of movies for PBS. Uh, we did a lot of different things, but it all goes back to being kind. The kind is what made it all happen. All right. Now, let's back it up a little bit because you cover a lot of grounds right there. When you, when you said your father wanted to produce some films to help people with their marriage, number one, and then also finances, number two. So what was your father thinking? And then what was your role within that production aspects? Well, in... Uh, for the culture we live in, most homes got to have a mom and dad working and there's no time for the kids to get pushed to the side. So it doesn't help the family out. So my dad had the idea that if you can become financially independent, your wife don't have to work. Dad can retire at an earlier age and be home with his family, import his faith to the kids and make a, a marriage life a whole lot better for everyone. And by helping one person, you help 
the country. You know, you help the world by making one family better at a time. So therefore, I was recording all these films and I didn't do much of the editing back then because it was on VCR tape. So I'd go through them and get the film all prepared that we bring it to a, a, a local studio. And they had the double machines where they could run things back and forth. So we would have him do all that. And then I'd put the soundtrack to it with the music. And my dad gave all these away to whoever wanted them. Uh, he started a thing called Christian Family Outreach, where he sends out 100,000 pamphlets a year to people from all over the world, just trying to give them the good news of God's salvation. Also, how to keep your family together and how to perhaps get wealthy if you do what the right, or do the right thing. Okay, we're going to cover all those things in another section in terms of your family. Um, how, why did he ask you to do, uh, do all the filming? Well, I was the oldest son, and I liked stereo equipment, and I liked things that were loud. Like I told you earlier, I liked uh, film my rock and roll heroes, and I was into music. So anything with electronics, I really was interested in learning about it and delving deep into how it worked and becoming proficient at uh, whatever I was working on. It takes about 2,000 hours to get proficient. So I had probably 5,000 hours working on that before I decided to get married, which was a much higher calling for me. That's quite a bit. 5,000 hours in any field is, is pretty good. When you were doing spending time producing for your dad and filming, in the end, what did you get out of it in terms of the back end of the camera? Uh, you talking about financially? or No, no in terms of experience as a... As a uh, DP, director of photography. What I got out of it was I learned the importance of getting the product out in a timely manner. Also, I learned that having the good equipment helped to expedite the process to, to get the project out, as well as make the customer happy when they get to watch it. It actually looks good. Right, right. Now, when you were behind the camera, did you have any sense of the angles that you wanted to take to make yes. the production look good? Or what, what were some of your basic... Uh, director photography perspective. Okay. When we were doing that, it was always a twofer, you know, a person on the left and a right, and we set the lighting up properly so there's no shadows. And we just generally what we call now an interview setup, and we would I'd set it up that way. There wasn't much to go from because uh, my dad had built the set the way he wanted it, and he had the camera shall go here, and the camera shall go here. So I did the best I can to make it look the best I could with what I was given. Remember, I was 18 back then, and, and when, when my dad said this is how he wanted it, my answer was, yes, sir. I wasn't going to try to put a lot into it because I didn't want to get him upset. But right, at the same right. time, I'm trying to make it interesting <laughs> as possible. You know, I'd zoom in and out on the cameras, have a little camera move to make it more interesting. But it wasn't a whole lot at that time. Right. Now, what, what gave your father the impetus or the idea that he wants to film these things and distribute it by uh, VHS tapes to begin with. Well, he listened to Fulton Sheen, who was a famous radio commentator back in the day. And then he became friends with Mother Angelica, who has the EWTN television network. And he realized quickly that he could go and give talks to all kinds of people. And there may be, you know, five people there or 500. But it's so much, so much easier to record it once and continue passing it out because it's the same message over and over again. And, you know, just like with your podcast here, we do these podcasts and we do it once, but it'll be watched ho over and over again by different people. And they may listen to this 10 years from now, but they'll need to hear this at a certain time in their life while they're looking for the subject. That's right. And That's you'll right. affect that person in the future. You don't even know they are. 
That's right. Now, just so that people understand, uh, Mother Angelica is a, was a, is a Catholic, is, was a Catholic nun who got on Eternal World Television Network and she broadcasted uh, like, I guess, sort of evangelist, evangelistic uh, programs, right? And that's where your that's father right. got the idea? Yes, sir. That was very interesting. I mean, that kind of makes your father rather a progressive in terms of, uh, I guess, trying to deliver certain messages. Now, you also acted in some films as well. So give us some background on that. Oh, man, that's pretty interesting. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, I, re- I retired from construction uh, right after the Bush tax cuts or the Bush bailout, whatever it was. I, I retired from construction and I'm, I didn't want to do anything because I was tired. And one of my friends was in a, a movie called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. And he was playing the violin. He was the, the, the band for the whatever they were. So I said, how'd you do movies? He said, well, I signed up at a website. So I signed up and the first movie I got to do was G.I. Joe. And uh, I did about 150 different productions. I got my SAG, all my SAG stuff. And it's been pretty amazing. But then I realized real quick. That I didn't want to memorize lines, so I decided to pick the camera up because you don't have to memorize anything when you're picking up a camera. You just do your job properly. What aspect of acting did you enjoy while you were doing those uh, roles? I think the best part of acting was the craft services on set. <laughs> I heard that. that. <laughs> yes, sir. They always had great food, great coffee. I didn't care for the long waits being the you know the personality I have. I got to keep moving and you're sitting on set for hours waiting to to go up for two minutes and go sit back down. That's not my, my cup of tea. I prefer to get behind the camera where I'm constantly active all day. Any particular film that uh, sticks to your mind as one of your uh, more, uh, memorable type? Well, if you've heard the ones I acted in or ones that I like. The one that uh, you were part of. All right. Well, we did an independent movie called Bertrand's Burdens. It's talking about how the government takes over everybody's stuff and eventually kills most of the citizens. Uh, I, I had speaking lines in that one, and I really enjoyed it because it, it, it brought out a side of me I didn't know existed. Which side yeah. was that? The evil, sinister side that I could be when I get very angry. <laughs> yes, sir. So yeah, and, then on, and then I worked on Fantastic Four, and I was, a, I think, a four-star general or something. And uh, that was pretty exciting to, uh, to be on that set. Then I did Roots, and I was a gambler with Chicken, Chicken Boy George or something like Chicken that. Chicken George. Yeah, Chicken George, and I had the hat on and the beard, had all the stuff, and I felt like I was straight from, from the Civil War period. So, so you got to experience a rather broad spectrum of uh, productions from uh, in, independent films to some of the large Hollywood ones. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, uh, my last thing I did was I was on Travel Channel's Ghost of Morgan City. I was acted in there for a little bit, and then I was also the data transfer guy. So every night I get the film from the cameras and I would upload it to Las, Vegas, Los Angeles or wherever I had to go to. Now, when you put on that uh, four-star general, uh, you became the character, didn't you? Oh, I certainly did. I felt that. Yes, sir. Yeah. I think half of acting is the wardrobe that you're given. You know, I think whatever cast uh, character you're playing, if they give you that proper wardrobe, you more or less become that character. And then you can kind of play the rest of it out pretty good, right? Yes, sir. I, I've been pretty much typecast as a politician a soldier, a judge, a lawyer, anything like that. Uh, the, that's what I get cast as because I do a good high and tight when they, I got short hair, so it spikes up and it's gray. <laughs> I, like, I, I look better than George Clooney, I believe. But when, when I see the Inquirer magazine is most handsome man alive, I'm like, well, they didn't check with me. 
Yeah, you're right. You got that distinguished look. So I can see why casting directors would cast you for some of this dignified, older uh, gentleman type of uh, role. And I bet you, I mean, there's no doubt that you would look good as an attorney or judge or that, that sort of thing. Now, tell us the uh, story about that Morgan, ghost of Morgan City right next door to your town. All right. Well, I shared this with you and I'm, I guess that's the story we're talking about is that uh, we were filming it and a lot of people were saying, oh, that's just a hokey movie. It's a TV series. It's hokey. It's not real. Well, uh, one night was we got done filming and I got called in by the producer. He says, you need to pay attention to a certain time code on these files. I need you to find this for me and send it to me directly. So I'm going through the files and it's an audio track. And an audio track is one microphone, and it's, it's a mono. That means that it's only one sound coming out. Well, I'm running this mono file. I'm listening to it, and when I'm hearing it, it does a stereo pan. It starts on this side and traveled across the sound spectrum to the other side. It is not supposed to do that. There's no way the microphone can do that because it's not built to do that. But it did it. So that was one of the things that really caught our attention was that how that happened. How that happened. That was the only time it happened during the whole production. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty interesting to see that. I mean, uh, down here in deep part of Louisiana, there are ghosts and ghost stories. And you validated just one of them. But, I mean, is it pretty much true that there, there are a number of uh, hauntings down there? Uh, yes, sir. I, I would believe so. Generally, I tell the kids that the, that the tie has been in the house. And there's also the swamp monkeys. And then there's also the ghost of Mr. Hale. So, for example, whenever we're in the house and I can't find my microphone or I can't find my whatever I have, you no, know, my toothpaste, my toothbrush, my ear cleaners, you know, anything I can't find or if my iced tea is all gone, they all say that uh, Mr. Hale took it. And Mr. Hale was our neighbor about. 30 years ago and he moved to Alabama. He got his own place there now, but it's always Mr. Hale took it because he had to blame it on somebody. Exactly. So it's that or travel to another dimension, right? Yes. It's, it's the ghost of Mr. Hale. So someone keeps stealing microphones from my studio. And I think Mr. Hale has them. There you go. Yes, you sir. mentioned earlier about a PBS that you produced. Uh, tell us what that was about and how he ended up on PBS. Oh, that's that, that's a good story. I, I like that story a lot. I was in acting class trying to learn something. Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, I can act crazy and everything, but I really can't act. And we're doing the, I think it was the Chernovic technique. I might be mispronouncing that. But anyway, we were doing that class. And my coach was named was, uh, Casey Groves. He's a super nice guy. And he was commissioned to write a script about priest from new orleans named father silos he was uh, paid by the silos foundation to write like a a, a one-man play then uh talking about his life and different characters so casey wrote a 28 character play it's about an hour and a half in in, a, in length well uh he called me one day and said hey will i want to shoot a little trailer from my play i did let's go to the silo shrine we're going to shoot some stuff so I'm up there shooting. Casey's doing his acting and some little blue haired lady show up and said, oh, Father Celos, we missed your play. We want to get a copy of the DVD. And, you know, me, I'm just got a big old mouth like, no worries, man. We'll get that for you in a couple of weeks. We're getting it recorded right now. And they just walked on off and the act. Casey was like, 
What in the hell was that, man? <laughs> we didn't record nothing. I said, listen, we're going to go to my house, get on the stage, put the lights on, and we're going to film this whole thing, and then we're going to sell it make you some money. So we did, and he sold a bunch of them. Then we get a call from PBS. They said, we want to talk to you about the Celos film. So I show up at the New Orleans PBS, and the lady said, well, we got to edit a couple things. I don't like a couple of things. It's, it's more technical stuff. It wasn't the acting. It was like you could hear stuff in the background and stuff, you know. So I said, OK. I said, I really want to reshoot this thing. And then and the lady said, you don't understand, Mr. Gill. This is a Hollywood studio. We charge five thousand a day. You can't do it. I said, OK, fine. Well, I'll do my best to clean it up for you. Well, this other guy walks in who I don't know who he is. He just walks in. He's like, man, what kind of camera you shot? To make that. And so we're talking camera stuff. Now we're geeking out on cameras. And when we're talking, he said, you have any complaints or anything? I said, yeah, I want to reshoot this thing. I said, I did it in my living room. Well, I have a stage in my living room. So it's not like a regular living room. It's a big, big place. I have a stage and everything. I said, uh, look, I want to reshoot. I heard the kids talking. I heard the wind chimes. I just I'd feel better reshooting this thing to, to get it right for, P- for TV. He said, hey, Beth, give him a week in the studio. My mouth fell open. Casey's mouth fell open and mouth and uh, Beth's mouth fell, fell open. They're like, oh, my gosh, what was that? I said, Father Celos wanted his movie to be shot. So we shot it and it played, I think, 20 or 30 times or maybe more than that on PBS New Orleans. And I uh, had about a half million viewers from what I was told. Now, how, did that make, how did it make you feel when when your product that you produced from, you know, ground up ends up on national broadcast on PBS, especially PBS? Well, I was happy about it, but on, but at the same time, I worked so hard on it. I just was happy that if it got aired, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's like success. So a lot of people become successful and you think they're going to act all a certain way. They'll act like they're high and mighty and put their nose in the air because they found they're wealthy. Truth of the matter is we work so hard and we finally get what we deserve. We find like, we feel like the guy's been swimming across the lake and he finally gets the other side. We're happy we made it, but it's like, Bro, I deserve this. Okay, I'm I'm not I'm not gloating. I just I'm glad that I finally got what I deserve from my hard work. Well, I mean that is something to be proud of. I mean, yeah, I mean you're not a very boastful person, but it is an accomplishment. I mean, not many yes, people yeah. can say that they have produced anything that got on you know national uh, broadcasting or you know yes, whatever this well, uh, series may be. Well, well, I think that uh, that Father Celos, who's a he, he, he's a favorite priest in New Orleans who died during the yellow fever epidemic in 1853. A lot of people intercede to him and uh, he, uh, there's a church there with a shrine to him and people go visit that and ask for favors from, you know, from God and everything. And there've been people been healed. So he has a devotion in a place right for the New Orleans because people there in New Orleans love their, uh, love their saints and their saints in heaven. There you go. You heard it yeah. here first people. Yeah. When you, from with your background in terms of production and producing things as extensive as you've done, what do you foresee as the future of film or media in general? I think holograms is coming up next. The holographic technology is uh, moving uh, quickly forward. And one of our artists, Nova, told me that his first music video is going to be a hologram, a hologram video. So I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with the technology. I'm not investing in it right now. Uh, I just spent too much on cameras this last year. And I want to go and try to recruit my investment or just wear them cameras out from use before I move on. Okay. Now, certain people of certain age 
will understand what hologram means, but there may be some people that may not know what hologram is. So could you give us a description for those uh, people so they have an idea what you're talking about? It's kind of hard to explain. I really don't know how to explain it very well, but if you get your iPhone and you, a hologram would be a 3D image made out of light that would be standing on top of your phone that you could actually look at in 3D. You turn the camera around, you can see all sides of the image. Yeah, it's like that scene from the Star Wars, the first movie, right? Yes, Where sir. Like, yeah. Leia. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, like when Princess Leia talked to R2-D2, the little light came out and there's an image there. Right. Now, several years ago, I, I believe there was a, a hologram of uh, Michael Jackson in concert. You know, I did see that. Yes, sir. You're right. What do you think about that? I'm thinking that cost a lot of money to get that production nailed down because they did a great job. Now, how is that going to be the future in terms of film or entertainment? You know, I have no idea. I don't know that it's exciting and it's new. And when it comes out, it's going to be a hit. Okay. So I guess we'll have to wait for the meta universe to uh, get their act together. Huh? That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. And we will be right back after this important message. Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step -step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it, and I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And we're back. Let's move on to chapter two here. Now, you know, most people try to you know, spend their life trying to master one field, you know, trying to learn all the crafts of one field. Like in your case, there was music. You, I mean, uh, in terms of film and, and, and TV productions and videos, that sort of thing. And that was suffice for the uh, majority of the people. But in your case, you also meandered into a totally entire field in music producing. And that's yeah. an entire different craft, different entire skill set. So how did, how did you go from one thing to a, another like that? Okay, that's a, now that, that question is part of my philosophy. I didn't talk to you about this in our early conversation. But there's this thing that's called the seven-year itch. You might have heard that before. I think there's a movie called Seven Year Itch. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, that's where most people get divorced too. <laughs> right, very good. Well then, well, then you're right on it. You see, public schools in a schooling institution – Education institution always tells you, go get a good education and get you a good job and be a dependable employee and show up for 30 or 40 years. And then one day we're going to fire you and you just flat on your back. All right. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I, I, I'm that un unemployable person. So I, I believe I should reinvent who I am every seven years, not hey. change my character or my morals. I like that. Yeah. So I was, I was just looking back on my life and I was in a shower one night thinking about that land. Like, what are you doing? Well, I started 
uh, and after I got a high school, worked in a satellite TV. And that's back when it was new. Then I went in, into a, the grocery business and I was there for six and a half years Then I got fired because I was unemployable because we were doing real <laughs> estate. And I did real estate until like uh, 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 we did construction for a long time. And then in about 2000, I started wondering how to build these cool houses that I wanted to build, but there was no books. And I found the building code. So that started building inspection. All right. Uh, prior to building inspection, I went to be a nurse, uh, a nursing assistant in the hospital. And I did that for a couple of years. You know, just trying to feel out different things. All right. So I started doing the, ins- uh, the inspection school and that took seven years. And then I got done construction about you know, 2008 and I shut that down. Then I decided I'm going to go be an actor because the one chick on GI Joe told me she should go work for FEMA because you got an inspector certification. So I went and did that. And that got a whole life of its own. You know, started traveling and doing stuff. But I started doing the film. So then I started thinking, what should I do next? Well, then I'm going to start, well, I'm going to build a studio. So we built the studio that I'm sitting in here now. And it was, it wasn't planned, but seven years passed. It's time to do something different. And I'm fixing to come up on another seven years here shortly. So I'm deciding what I'm going to do next. And I think I'm going to build a swim pool in the backyard. Okay. So let's get back to your music uh, producing. So yeah. You just decided one day after a certain seven-year period, you're going to go into a totally different field and start getting into music production? Right. Yeah. Well, what happened was uh, back in the 90s when I was just married, I was playing my guitar. You know, we recorded some stuff. I did like seven records or seven albums. Then I decided to get serious about real estate. So did that. Then I bought all my gear back in 2008 and started doing music videos, you know, with the cameras. And then it ended up like the audio didn't sound good. So we decided, hey, we're going to move forward and start dabbling in recording. So I did that. And then my son, uh, he he grew up, started playing guitar. And I said, let's build a jam place for you to come play your guitar. So we built the room and put a little recording desk in there. And one of, one of my friends came in and said, well, you know, you should buy this, this, and this. And so I went and bought this and this. Ended up costing about 40000 And then we have a studio now. All right, so let's get back to you. You say you recorded some songs. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what song did you record? What, what was it? Uh, I met a tenant in one of my rental houses, and I went to collect the rent, and he opened up. He, when I opened the door, he was sitting there with some chick playing guitar, and he was singing something. I said, man, that sounds good. He goes, I wrote this. And he says, matter of fact, I wrote about 30 songs. So he immediately became my best friend. He came to my house, and we started recording all his music. So he would sing it, and I'd just get on the piano when I would just do the thing and make all the arrangements. So that's what it was. It was pretty amazing to work with people like that who are so talented. So did it uh, get any traction in the end? Well, when back in the day on mp3.com, when they were still in business, we had some number one hits for a certain amount of time for some of our music. And uh, I think that would just be me clicking on it so many times for listening to it. <laughs> I don't know, but, but still, it, but it, it felt good to have that. That's good. Now, you do play instrument because you do play keyboards or piano. Yes, sir. And I understand you also uh, play guitar, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, and, play music. You got some collections there, nice collection, guitar collection. Yes, sir. I love I love collecting guitars. I don't play that well, but it's great to have them. It's something to look at. Some people buy Picassos for the wall. I'll just buy a guitar. It makes me happy to look at it. Yeah, I understand. Um, what are some of the nice guitars you have so far? 
I've got a couple Eddie Van Halen Wolfgangs and custom paint jobs because I like that's what I like. And we got some Strandenburgs that are from Australia. And I bought my son one for Christmas. So then I went and bought me one that's even nicer. Then it disappeared from my studio. Kind of find out my son took it. Then I went and bought an even more expensive one. I told my son, this is my hat rack. Throw <laughs> the rack. Don't touch it. It's for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Then uh, I got a, a couple of Mike Rock guitars. He's a Luth- Mike is a luthier from our area who just passed away. And he was supposed to go work for PV Guitars. And he decided he wanted his freedom instead of being locked down to the grind. And uh, he, he built guitars here and there. And he built me three of them in about 1991. And those are my favorites. That is cool. Now, there's a story behind your uh, production company name, which is Valen Productions. Yes, sir. What's the story behind yeah. that? The story is at the beginning of 2021, I decided to rebrand. It was like I was just sitting at my desk and say, you know what? I'm going to change my name. So the first year we call it Valen Productions. And I like Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, he's I love the way he plays. So V-A, then L-E-N is Van Halen abbreviated. Just saying. That's cool. Yeah. Valen Productions. So at least when people know when they hear the name, they know what it's about. You have a yeah, well, very, very nice uh, setup. For yeah. Well, the logo, well, well, the Valen logo is a, like, is a picture of the guitar that I have with the Eddie Van Halen stripes all over it. So, and I've been to your website and your website is really wonderful. It's a great layout. It's got a lot of content. Well done. Well, yeah, done. Sir, that was, yeah that's Rumble Brands from Las Vegas. Yeah. I mean, it was clearly well done. And then, for the uh, options menus, you got the little like volume knob, like as in recording studios, which I yes, thought sir. was very clever. Yes, sir. Thank you. Now, when you, you, I mean, how many studios you have at your house? Currently, we have three. We have Studio A, B, and C. Studio A is the video recording. Uh, well, it's a video suite. It has the uh, Adobe suite. So you can go in there and do all your Adobe stuff right there. Studio B, where I'm currently at, this is the... Uh, the mastering suite where we can record music and, and master, mix and master. And Studio C, which is over there, that's a, that's a blacked out theater room, uh, sound dampened, uh, heat and cooling, has a wood floor, so it has a little bounce if you walk on it, got a little seating. And we have a stage in there with a complete light show, haze machine, low land fog. So we can do a full production for music videos there or theater productions right there. Yeah, I mean, when you showed, gave me a tour of it, I was like, Wow, this is pretty good. Not only that, this is pretty serious. Yeah, well, well, like I said, I'm, I'm a contractor, and it's like, what, what am I going to build next? And I'm like, all right, let's do this. Uh, my oldest daughter said, "Dad, that's not the house I grew up in." I said, "Damn right, it's not." What you see, I do to it next. <laughs> now I got a question. With your setup that you have, you have three different studios, and legitimately, they're all officially, you know, working places. Do you write them off in terms of taxes? Um, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. No, 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 no. Because uh, that's a, that, that taxes means a couple of different things. See, because we have property taxes here. Then we have sales taxes. I mean, different kind of tax brackets in our area. So on my taxes, Valen Productions is an LLC, which runs in my taxes. So then you claim all the expenses to go in that in any income. And right now it's so far in the red. It's not, it's pathetic. So, uh, but that's how I want to run it. Cause you always buy more gear than what money you bring in. But on the other hand, I'm not, this is not to make money, Augustus. 
this is because I love music and some people can't afford a studio. So if someone calls up and says, Hey, I got some great stuff. I said, come on in, bro. <laughs> Your house is my house. So I give them the code for the lock to come in and out and I lock the back door. So my wife don't get scared. If somebody comes in. Well, I think she peeked in a little while ago, but anyway, yeah. I, if I can help somebody move on with their life and get a project going, that's good for me. And and the reward is, it's not about the money. If I can lift my fellow man up and they can do good, then I do good because we all go up together, you know, because I, I know man's an island. I can have all this cool stuff and charge a bunch of money and have no customers, or I can have a lot of friends come in here, give everybody some amazing music, make the world a better place. And I want, and I'll take the latter. And you are a very, very generous man. And I can vouch for that. Uh, you exemplify what President John F. Kennedy once said, that rising tides lifts all boats. Yes, exactly right. And that ties in with your religious man of faith, and we'll talk about that a little later, so save that. Now, you not only have this uh, uh, wonderful production uh, capability, but you also do filming for video for a number of bands. And in fact, last weekend, you were at a gig filming, so... Let's talk about that and then talk about the other ones that you've done. Oh, okay. Yeah. This last weekend, we had a rock in the bayou in uh, near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the Lamar Dixon Center. It's a very nice venue. And we had Lillian Axe, Bill Champlin from the band Chicago, who was the lead singer from in the early 90s and early 2000s. We had a band called Autograph. We had Firehouse and then Night Ranger, which was my favorite from high school. And we, uh, we, have, we were tasked with filming those bands. And uh, we've released a couple of videos for them so far. And there's, there's some good coverage for the Rock in the Bayou concert series. Okay. So how about some of the other ones that you uh, video? Like you got on the, a bus tour with some of these people. So go ahead. Let's talk about that. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, when, when I first started doing this music stuff, what up? Uh, hold on. Uh, I got, I got to get this straight. All right. I, I got called by a lady to film a two minute clip of lady of old people eating ball crawfish down the bayou. All right. So I wouldn't filmed it. And I'm thinking I was put off because I only got to film a tiny bit, but by going there, I was able to meet a musician who played for a band called Louisiana LaRue, which was my favorite in high school. I went to Memphis with this guy to haul his gear and bring my cameras and shoot a little video. And when I went to that gig, I got to meet Chubby Checker, the lead singer from uh, Toto, Chicago, 38 Special, Fog Hat, Survivor Band. I mean, Yo, just oh, on. I got to great. meet my rock. It was, just, it was just totally amazing. And then after that one, I found out that the guy who put on this whole concert was Scooby-Doo, the voice of Scooby-Doo. His name's Scott Ennis, an amazing man. And he didn't want to know if I wanted to be family or crew. And he told me what the criteria was. I said, well, I want to be family. And so far, I probably... My catalog is like 170 artists right now. And uh, I'm going to say about 70% of them are like A-list musicians. All because I said yes to film some old ladies eating ball crawfish. There you go. So you never know where life leads, right? You never know. So if the door opens up, I'm walking through it every time. Uh, You mentioned earlier about the tour thing. I met this guy in Morgan City working for the last Honky Tonk music series. His name was Casper McQuaid. Real nice guy, real nice guy. He's from up in Oklahoma. And he came down last month for a show. 
you know, COVID's been hurting everybody in the music business, and he was kind of trying to put things together, you know. He said, listen, I'm going to be going on a 10-night a ten, a ten, ten tour. It's going to be 14 nights total. We're going to go from Omaha, Nebraska, down to North Carolina, and it's going to be called the Trifecta because he has a rock band, a country band, and an Irish band. He sings for all three, and he has different musicians for each band. And he asked me if I want to come ride. And I'm like, bro, if you tell me what time to be there, I'm going to jump on that bus with you. I'm on the road, and I'll bring all my camera gear. I want to experience all that driving on the road. And plus, I'll be in North Carolina. I might be near where you live. <laughs> but you probably won't tell me where you stay at, so I won't go bother you. <laughs> uh, you are welcome anytime, brother. Don't worry about it. Anytime, yes, anytime. Now, this fellow that you're talking about who uh, has three different bands, and they all, all, that's three different uh, genre of music. Yes, now, it does, is. Does he actually uh, fit fit in with those three different criteria uh, genres? Yes, sir. He's Irish by I think by national. I think that's his heritage as being Irish. And then he does. He did a lot of country because he played all the country circuit. And then he straight up looks like a hard rock guy because he's he's very masculine with muscles and everything, and he's totally fit. And he he can do all three. He's really he's a very talented musician. Then he has like a different band for each group, so it works out okay. So he's he's very versatile when it comes to singing. Yes, sir. He is. How about that? He's almost as versatile as you are, my man. I think that's why we click uh, click together so well. There you go. Geniuses think alike. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. <laughs> and we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Yeah, before all these glorious and famous days, you were actually a real estate investor at one point in your life. Yes. Sir. And you have a, actually a large footprint in your community. I mean, seriously large footprint. So you want to give us a little bit of the background, how you ended up getting into the real estate investing and what you do uh, as, I guess, sort of a part-time thing if you choose to do so? All right. Yeah, well, my grandfather was here in Patterson and he did a big development. And after he did the development, the U.S. Department of Highways came through and took half his property because they needed it for the highways. So it kind of messed up his real estate deal he had going on. I think that's, my father, that's called eminent domain, right? I didn't want to say all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. But he got, I hope he got at least the market value for the land. He He got... Everything was called agricultural land, so they got pennies on a dollar. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's how it is sometimes. Well, my dad bought some of the lodge from him, and he started doing some rental houses. And uh, all during school, I, was, I remember being in first grade, going to the construction site with dad and climbing in the attic because I was nimble. I could climb across the joist and run wires for him. So it started like that, and all through school, I was always in construction doing something. And then when I, uh, when I was... 18, my dad retired from his job in the oil field and put us to work building stuff. So we built like 300 or more houses. My brothers and I built that many houses. And you just, uh, some of them are still building. I, I don't need to build no more. I'm done. Yeah, I mean, so, it's incredible because when I, you know, when, you know, when I, when you showed me the properties you own and then also your brother Christian, he owns, I mean, it's like a huge, huge footprint. 
and and it seems like you own half of the community down there in terms of uh, housing. Well, yeah, well, it was pretty amazing when we started building back in the 80s, the neighbors and the property owners were saying, y'all shouldn't be building and the economy is bad. You know, no one's going to rent. And my dad's reply to us was, we're going to rent our stuff quick because they got junk out there. We offered a brand new house for comparative rates or maybe just a little bit more. And what would you prefer, live in a 20-year-old house that's, do- that's torn up or pay hundred dollars a month more or something brand new. You're going to say that on your air conditioning bill. So we just started building and infilling all the subdivisions we could find. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing. It, the footprints that, that your family has is quite amazing and very impressive. Uh, what you just said, and you have to keep in mind that you are talking about part of Louisiana where it gets hit by hurricane every year. Yes. And so what you're saying about having a living in a newer place makes a whole lot of sense to me. Now, when you were growing up, did you learn how to be a contractor by watching and by just doing things on your own? Or did you have a former training from uh, some kind of a contractor? No, sir. Uh, no training at all. Uh, we, we got on the job with some older guys, and they showed us what they do. And we just started doing it. And then a lot of us just trial and error to get it right. Remember earlier I told you I learned about the building code and found there was a book that tells you how to do everything. That's why I, per, I pursued that so much, because if you don't build it right, you can have litigation and something fails. And if you're building something simple, like a little small house, it's pretty easy to get it all right. But I, I like to push the envelope on my construction. I like to try things that people go like, what in the hell is this? <laughs> How'd you do that? Okay, that's what I want to do. I want to I build cool stuff. And you have to know how to build it right so you don't have any problems in the future. Right. When you <clears throat> with a number of houses that you had you and your family had built when you have dreams do you sometimes dream of building houses no sir not at all <laughs> not at all uh i want, remember i told you i retired after the bush the bush tax thing and back or whatever it was the bush bailouts i was actually not happy getting up in the morning smelling mobile reds and sawdust for years it's like you want a job site and you go it's good. It smells good. <laughs> Got to be here. Then one morning, I was like, you know what? I'm done. Hundred percent. Do you want to go do something? No, I will not go do that. It's kind of like William. You want to memorize all these lines? Here are your sides. No, 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 no. I'll pay you. No, no. I'm not doing that. So that chapter is closed. Totally closed. Yes, sir. So like that movie uh, Apocalypse Now, where that colonel comes out, gets up in the morning, and says, "I love the smell of napalm in the morning." You're done with that. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm going to build a pool, so I'm working on that. I'm working up the courage to go in my shed and start. I'm, I'm going to build a scale model of my pool that I'm going to build, like a one-foot, a, a one, a one one-inch scale, so it'll be like this long. But I'm going to build a scale model so I can put it on my desk and look at it and then make adjustments as I think about it, because the more you think about something, the clearer it becomes. Yeah, that's, that's very good. That's very good. In terms of your life uh, scope, what part did real estate and being a, a contractor and being an investor play in your life? It was huge because you have to do a lot of personal development because there's so many aspects. You have to know how to, let's see, deal with employees, hire employees. You have to know how to do banking, very important. You had a budget. You got to do, uh, what's it called, uh, go bid, uh, go bid these jobs and do estimates. 
Uh, then you have to market it. Then you got to deal with customers such as uh, irate customers who are mad about something. Then you have tenants who don't want to pay. Then you got screen tenants. You got to become a, a, a judge of character to see if they're going to be trustworthy. I mean, the whole thing comes together. And then you got to learn about taxes, how, how insurances, yeah, just on and on. All these things comes together in construction. You get pretty ha- and you can read people pretty good when you finish. That's a lot of hat to wear. Yeah. Yeah. That's why my hair is gray. So, so you think uh, having that in your background has helped you as a film producer and, and a music producer? Oh, definitely. Yes, sir. Yeah, because now when I go do a project, I ask for a contract in front, and I know what I'm going to get paid before I get there. And upon leaving, I do bill properly and get my uh, my check if I'm going to get one. I can also manage my people pretty well. I can line things up. I can. Uh, I've also I, I've learned that you hire the people you need for a position, not because you like them, but because they're good at what they do. For so long, I just want to hire people like me, you know, who are, you know, white male, you know, same age as me who do construction. And that's okay. But I found out if I want to hire a good cabinet person, I'll find someone who's only does that and does a good job. I'll find an electrician who just does that and then they do a good job. I don't want anybody like me. I want somebody who's better than me. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So, in other words... You separate the person's policy versus person's personality. Right. I want a diverse workforce. You know what I'm saying? I want everybody to have equitable time on the job. And, uh, and I'm inclusive because I want all kinds of people to be in my vol- involved in my job. If they're the best. That's the point. They have to know how to do it. You know, because you're not doing a good job, but then you don't, ma- you don't match the criteria. Okay. Get to move on. So this this uh, kind of dovetails nicely to your other character, uh, which is your role presently as as you know in the past a city inspector for your town. For your yes, city. sir. So it kind of makes sense how you got into it, but tell us how this uh, city inspector role came up in your life. Oh wow, that's uh, that's an interesting story, and that is we were shooting fireworks for New Year's with my kids and I never shoot fireworks. I don't want to spend any money on something. You're going to blow up. Uh, when we finished shooting the fireworks, uh, had a knock at the front door and it's the police. They're like, uh, Mr. Gill, uh, you're shooting fireworks. I'm like, yeah, sure did. I shot a whole bunch. He said, yeah, it's kind of illegal to shoot those here. <laughs> so you know what I did? <laughs> he says, he says, I got to give you a ticket. So I went Facebook live. <laughs> hey, y'all, it's new year's Eve. I haven't shot fireworks here ever. And guess what? The Popo's here giving me a ticket. <laughs> Isn't Happy New Year's from the city of Patterson. So I put, put it on Facebook. I didn't think nothing about it until 13 days later, I get a call from City Hall. The mayor wants to have a meeting with me. So I was like, shoot. So I heard and deleted it. <laughs> I get to City Hall. Then I'm like, hey, man, I'm sorry about the video. They're like, no, no, no. Uh, our building inspector for 35 years retired today and we want you to take his place. And I'm like, Oh hell no, 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 <laughs> no, I don't need a job. I'll come work for two weeks for free to get all your stuff in order and any inspection you got to get done. I'll just come and do it and get you caught up. But I don't want a job. And the mayor 
Merrick Rogan, he's a great man. He says, what will it take for us to hire you? I said, well, it got to be part-time. It got to be remote. I got to have full access to your website. I need a phone and a computer and permission to do whatever I need to do to bring this up to speed because you have nothing right now. He said, agreed. And I got to be a takeoff whenever I want to because I know I, I'm shooting all kind of stuff and I might have to leave the country to go do something. I, I, I knew I had to go to France in June for three weeks to shoot a movie. And I had a couple tours lined up. And the mayor said, yep, whatever you want to do is fine. You just make everybody happy and, you know, do, you know, just do the job. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. So here's a, it's, a, it's almost my year anniversary for being there. How about that? You, are you enjoying it? Yes, sir, I'm enjoying it because uh, being that I've been doing this for so long and I've become a kind person, I know how to handle myself when things get kind of rough. You can be kind to the people and kind of ease them into the right lane where they need to be for where they're doing. Uh, working for the FEMA, you have to do things in such a way that whenever you walk away, the next person comes in and the job continues. So I have, all my stuff now is up to up to speed, and it's working real well. And the mayor's very pleased. Yeah, um, you've got all the. I mean, you really updated the city of Patterson's uh, city inspector office with all the computers and all the paperwork and all the uh, maps at this point. Yes, yeah, sir. The number no paperwork is all digital, and yeah. that makes things very nice. So when the next person after me comes in, you'll just take the hard drive that I'm leaving on the desk and you just plug it in and air things there. Yeah, I mean, they, the city of Patterson had a, a, a huge leap from where they were to where they are now because uh, they were intelligent enough to hire you. Now, in regards to that New Year's uh, evening uh, ticket, did they, uh, how, how did that resolve? Well, after he, uh, we had the discussion about all the stuff you want to talk about. And I said, yeah, I thought I was coming to get fussed out about my ticket. He says, Oh man, just bring that next door. You, man, don't worry about that. You work here. And all of a sudden, a red flag went up. It's like, hold on. That means that I'm an unelected bureaucrat and getting special privileges because I'm an employee. I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to go and pay my ticket. You know, I did, you know, I, I would do something wrong. So I'll pay my ticket. That's the right thing for me to do. Oh, wow. That was, that's very. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like, okay. Yeah, because a lot of times I'm up here. I'm here saying, oh, them people there shouldn't be doing that. But when I was offered a chance, I could have taken it, and then I've been hypocritical. I'm like, no, man, I, I did the crime. You know, I uh, shot fireworks where I wasn't supposed to, so I, I, I'll pay the ticket. Good, well, good for you. Uh, that's <laughs> very honorable. Now, as a city official, there's always that personal discretion on a job or situations. Yeah. And I'm sure you have been in situations so where you had to make a personal discretionary judgment. As a public official, do you have a philosophy of what a public servant should be? Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, we need to be reminded that we are servants of the people. Okay. We're there to serve. And that's huge. So when I'm doing inspections on somebody's job or I'm working on their project, I'm worried about health, safety, and welfare of that person and their job site. All right. Sometimes you get people who go on a job and they want to make a name for themselves. So they call out all kinds of things that's super minor infractions of the law and really are hard on the contractors. 
Uh, I believe that, first of all, it was safe. So it's built according to the code, won't fall on nobody, won't injure nobody. It got to be sanitary. You, you can't have people getting black mold sick or anything. You know, and you got to take care of their welfare. Everything got to be in those parameters. Anything else is uh, incidental, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So you believe in uh, enforcing certain, as- I mean, law, obviously, but not to the extreme level where it becomes a burden for society as opposed to creating safety issues. You know, a police officer can give you a ticket for going one mile over the speed limit. He can give you a ticket for not completely stopping at a stop sign. All right. That's his discretion. Same with the uh, with a building official. Well, if, if we look at the plan, it's like uh, this plan is ninety nine point nine percent correct. You forgot to dot an I. I could reject it for that. But it's like, no, it's right. OK, it's built right. It's, it's going to be fine. You go to work. Go, uh, go to work. OK. You know, you know, if you can look at it and you know it's going to be right, you know, you, uh, you approve it. OK. Now, at the present time, in terms of planning department, or I don't know if the city of Patterson has a planning department, but what is the zoning uh, situation in terms of uh, Patterson at this present time? It is in flux right now. We are uh, working with some professionals. We're hiring some professionals to come in there and assess the area and give suggestions to where things should be zoned to make the area more attractive to other people coming in and also for businesses. Okay. Um, five years from now or 10 years from now, how, how do you see city of Patterson uh, being? I'm hoping there's lots of nice places. I'm hoping that we find a way to attract more businesses. Uh, I did have a meeting with our mayor this morning and he said, William, when Mr. Augustus came in here, he asked me a question and you know what? I was never asked that question before. What do you have to offer? And uh, if, in fact, uh, he uh, took one of our people in the office, who's a super smart man, and he said, I'm going to add to your job position economic development to go try to find people to come in town to start businesses. So the mayor actually <laughs> didn't forget what I said, huh? Exactly, because he was like, William, I've never been asked that before. We've always been asked, you know, what's nice about Patterson? But what do you have to offer to businesses? Okay, so for the listeners, a little background. Uh, Recently, William and I, well, rather, William took me to City Hall and introduced me to the mayor of uh, Patterson. And we had a nice 20-minute chat. And in the course of the conversation, we talked about a number of different issues. And uh, one of the things that I uh, suggested as I left office was, you know, what does Patterson offer that would attract opportunities. And that's what uh, Will is referring to right now. So I'm impressed the fact that the mayor actually, uh, it didn't go into one ear out the other. Well, I'm very happy that he listened and then he picked that up because I had never been asked that question either. So like just this morning, I was driving all over St. Mary Parish in the business areas to see what they have that Patterson doesn't have. And then what could we offer to other businesses and then what do we have what are our attributes that them areas that are in the other parts of paris do not have so it's been a lot of thinking and it takes a minute to get this going but that's how great plans made it takes a lot of planning well they got the right man for the job because uh they hired they were smart enough to hire you and you're well, I, got spent, 
Yeah, well, I've got friends who are real smart and ask the right questions, Augustus. <laughs> well, sometimes we get lucky. But you're a thoughtful man, and uh, based on your accomplishments in the past and, and even more in the future, I think Patterson, uh, Patterson's future looks bright. This is the end of part one. We thank you for listening and invite you to tune in the next time for part two. Meanwhile, join our growing family by subscribing to our podcast.